What's up, everyone? Happy Monday. Welcome to another episode of That Creative Life. Thanks for hanging out with me in these weird times. Um, You know, last week I mentioned that I was going to have the podcast about like the basics of finance and all that with my dad, who's really into all those things. Um, And that's, you know what, that will happen when I can get him excited about it because turns out sitting down for a podcast when your job isn't podcasting isn't that exciting. Anyways, in between that and it being increasingly hard to just do my job um, when I don't have my office or my apartment, it's kind of, you know, it's just kind of weird. It's kind of a weird time, guys. I'm in my Texas childhood home. So thankful for her family. It's really great, you know good for the heart, um, but just really kind of difficult to do my job sometimes. <laughs> and then on top of that, wow, I just, I started this podcast with a rant. I hope you guys are enjoying this. This is that creative life exclusive. I'm telling you, the people who tune into the audio episodes are going to get some juicy stuff. But yeah, for some reason, I've been stuck on my iPad Pro video for a while just because the more I use it, the more I'm realizing, oh my gosh, there's so many things to talk about. I guess just because I haven't been the biggest iPad fan in the past, well, kind of forever. I've always just been, you know, give me my laptop and my desktop and I'm happy. And then I kind of fell in love with the two-in-one setup with the touchscreen. And that's why I really gave this iPad a shot because it seems like Apple is trying to take this form factor seriously now uh, with, you know, the new Magic Keyboard. And they're realizing that the ideal form factor is somewhere in the middle, right? Something that can do touch and can be your actual computer. So um, I am definitely taking my time on that video. Never thought it would take me a month to make. But here, we are. Um, thank you for tuning in. Today we have a interview from the archives that you guys have actually never heard before. This is what is great for, you know, making YouTube videos and doing interviews for over five years now. Um, you know, with the interviews and I started my YouTube channel in 2011. Yep, 2011. Wow. So we're coming up on the 10 year anniversary. Um, so we have an interview from the archives with Ted Forbes, who is, um, has a channel, The Art of Photography. So he's a photographer and has been talking about photography for over 10 years. Um, and I posted a little clip from when he was on this podcast, That Creative Life, on the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash That Creative Life. And you guys seem to really enjoy it. Um, and so he's only been on the podcast once, but he was on my series, my YouTube series on my channel, Creative Spaces TV. Maybe that was 2016. So that was over four years ago. And that video that of that docuseries is only, I think, seven to 10 minutes. And I talked to him for a while. So I actually cut together the, the full interview from the Creative Spaces TV episode. So no one has really ever heard this full episode before. So I'm um, going to share that with, with you guys today. So that'll be the first 30 minutes. And the second 30 minutes, we're just going to do an extended Q&A with your girl, Sarah Peachy, because, you know, I'm on the internet a lot and you guys are always asking me questions and talking to me. So I feel like this is the best forum, the best medium to do that right? It's, it's kind of, we're just going to go back to kind of hanging out a little bit. And then I'll, I'll, I'm going to start booking more interviews in the next month or so. But yeah, lots of exciting, exciting things coming up. Thank you for subscribing. And I just want to thank um, our sponsor here at That Creative Life, B&H Photo. 
Thank you, BNH, for sponsoring this podcast. BNH is a group of people who are passionate about the things that you're passionate about, from photography, film, music, art, technology, creating, all of the things. They have so much gear, anything you could ever imagine, from the gear that you need to stream video games with, you know, the Elgato, the Blackmagic equipment, from cameras, video cameras, computers, iPads, all the things. BNH is the largest non-chain electronics retailer in the U.S. Um, so they're based in New York City, my home, and I love them so much because they create, uh, they they partner with creators and really support the creators locally there in New York City. Um, and, you know, they were super involved with the event that we threw Hustle and Why. They really care, which is awesome. And guess what? You can still pick up gear at the B&H Superstore within 30 minutes if you're in New York City. Of course, the B&H Superstore is closed due to world events, but hello, if you are ever in New York in the coming years, that is definitely something to put on your bucket list to see because that store if you're into gear, is like a dream. They also have free next day shipping in the New York state. And then they're, they're still shipping worldwide. So you can always check out bnhphoto.com for updates on their shipping times. Um, and then also you can check out my podcast gear if you are um, you know, curious what podcast gear I use, what microphones, recorders, and then also what I use um, for my YouTube channel that is in the description below. And without further ado, let's just hop into this Ted Forbes interview. I tried to cut around my audio as much as possible because I'm just kind of in the background. I didn't have a mic and I'm kind of like, oh yeah, well, blah, blah, blah. And I blabber on for you know, a long time, kind of like I'm doing now. Um, so that's why maybe some of the cups or cuts are a little abrupt, but enjoy this. I love Ted. He, he's like an OG friend from Dallas since I'm from Texas. Um, so I got to know him before really my YouTube career, you know, became what it is today. So enjoy Ted Forbes. Uh, my name is Ted Forbes. I'm a photographer and filmmaker. I live in Dallas, Texas, and I'm probably most known for the show that I do on YouTube called The Art of Photography. I come from a very artistic family. My dad is an illustrator, and when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s and in the 90s, he uh, had a very successful career uh, doing illustration commercially, so it was everything from postage stamps to magazine covers to you name it. Uh, my mom was an interior designer, and my sister's a graphic designer, so I grew up around a very artistic household. And my thing at that time, I guess when you're growing up is, is uh, you know, you kind of take a little bit of that for granted. You just assume that's what everybody does. And the only way for me to rebel against some of that was was doing music. And I played guitar and I played rock bands and I wanted to be the next Jimi Hendrix when I was a kid. And I started getting more serious about that and I ended up enrolling at Booker T. Washington, which is a performing arts high school in Dallas. And it allowed us to take four music classes a day and I started getting into jazz music and classical music and I eventually went to the University of North Texas. Uh, got a degree. I ended up, I transitioned there from just being a performance major into doing composition because it was something I was really into. Um, I think that, you know, we all have circumstances that we are in at the time. And I remember there was a pivotal point at North Texas where I remember I was listening to somebody speak and he said, you know, you're around certain things now that you won't be around when you get out. And the big one that he said is, you know, you, you have access to big bands and an orchestra right now, learn to write for them. So I really got into composition at that point. And by the time I was done with school, um, this was in the early 90s, uh, graduated in 95 or so. 
And what I really wanted to do at that point in my life was score films. And I realized that in order to do that, I needed to move to Los Angeles and starve for another 10 years. And after I'd been starving through school, I had no interest in doing that at all. And around that time, the tech boom was really taking off. And I got an opportunity to work um, as a musician uh, for a company that was designing music software. And it was in the educational field. And they hired me originally to, like we did a title on Jimi Hendrix. And so I transcribed and wrote all the stuff out note for note and then they had it was back then cd-roms were the big thing so you'd put in the cd-rom and it would show you how to play it so then they'd videotape me playing it as well so that was a lot of fun but that exposed me to the technology side that was um, just booming in the 1990s um, and I got into coding and programming a little bit through friends at work and then when I left there I ended up I was very interested in graphic design and I'd come come back full circle to that whole visual element of things and at the time I really wanted to do video work mainly because that passion for film scoring. And back then, I mean, it was very expensive to get into video. I mean, we're talking about how amazing the technology is now and how much you can do with, you know, even a limited budget. And back then, that wasn't the case. I mean, SD cameras were like two, $3,000, and you couldn't, like computers couldn't keep up with it. Uh, the company that we worked with, who's one of the guys that's still a really good friend of mine today, and they had the Advid Symphonies over there. And I mean, they cost like $25,000 a piece, and it was extra hard drives and all that stuff that the computer would just drive it, and it would do all the processing. And I remember you'd stay up all night trying to render a five-minute video, and you come in in the morning, and if it didn't fail, you had your video, <laughs> or you had to re-render the next night. We had computers that were just dedicated to that. And so at that time, um, Flash had come along, uh, which at the time was Macromedia before they sold it to Adobe. And there was this huge culture around Flash that's something that I really liked. And for me, it was... Um, a pivotal point because it was a way of making things move and being able to animate things and have that video element without the expense associated with doing video. And at that time, um, it, probably still one of my biggest influences to this day was a gentleman named Hillman Curtis, who was a designer in New York that was part of that flash culture. And I remember seeing what he was doing and it was really early on and he would actually go through flash and animate frame by frame in kind of what ultimately now is you know like an animated GIF, but it was all in flash. But you could do chunks of stuff and then type would come up and it would tell a story as it was going along. And that just blew my mind because it was a way of kind of replicating video without having to get too much into it. You could do it with a still camera and you could do it with you know the macromedia stuff that was out at the time. And so I got big into that. And uh, I freelanced for several years doing graphic design and mainly uh, digital media, doing motion work. And around 2008, um, I had the opportunity, a uh, position opened up at the Dallas Museum of Art, and they were looking for a flash developer, is what they, or I think it was a flash designer, and which is very funny, and the reason I'm laughing is I think I did one project in flash the entire seven years I was there. It was early on, and it was something that should have been done in PowerPoint, but we want this to be wilder, is all they, you know, so I coded this thing, it was extremely tedious and awful and all that, but anyway, around this time, um, online video, I mean, YouTube was definitely out, and by 2008, it was definitely steamrolling. Um, and iTunes uh, had podcasting, which was real big at that time. And the museum wanted to move into a different direction with multimedia. Uh, and they wanted to start incorporating video and stuff that was more episodic in nature so they could try to develop an audience doing that. And they said, well, can you do it? And of course, they said, sure, and had no idea what I was doing. And at that time, consumer video cameras were coming down in price. And I remember it was right over Christmas break. I went to Best Buy or whatever it was and bought 
I think it was like 1200 bucks and I have it around here. It's one of those little toilet paper roll, but it did HD and it was awful. It was a little Panasonic. And I just started shooting my nephew at Christmas and, and like totally got addicted to it because I'd never been able to do video before. And now it was, the computers had caught up so you could edit in Final Cut um, and you could do all this stuff at home. And so I started doing that. But what I really needed was a project to do that I could mess up on and make all my mistakes. So around 2008, uh, it was October, I started doing the photography show that I do today, The Art of Photography. And I thought, I'll do 10 episodes of this and then that'll be it. Yeah, I just didn't think anybody would be interested, especially for a video podcast. Um, and so it was originally launched on iTunes and I got about four or five episodes in and I had no schedule. I mean, I was just having fun. And it was a lot of fun because you, I mean, I guess, Especially with iTunes, because you don't see those numbers and the statistics, you don't really have a sense of any, whether anybody's actually watching it or downloading it or not. And so I put this stuff together and put it online, and before I knew it, I was getting emails. People would like actually look me up and or find me on Twitter, and they'd, hey, I like your show, blah, blah, blah. And it was really interesting, so I just kept doing it. And it was it evolved into this thing that, you know, it was, it was my project. It had nothing associated with it. Um, when I worked for the museum, being a nonprofit, there's always a lot of people who have to sign off on things. And it's very rarely still your idea intact by the time it ends because it just changes so much. And so this was the one thing that was mine that I could do on nights and weekends. And so I kept doing it. And eventually, the museum sent me to London. Um, I was speaking at um, Tate Modern um, about cell phone technology because we had done the, the first round of smartphone tours where you could use your phone and it was just a mobile website and you could start to see video. So I went over there and I noticed that, you know, on my stats that I had all these people like hitting my website from the UK. So I thought, well, what if I do a meetup? Um, that'd be kind of fun, you know? So, and I, it was the worst possible time to schedule it. I basically said, you know, we're going to do a meetup. It'll be at 10 o'clock in the morning uh, on a Friday. You know, everybody's at work, especially a big commuter city like London. I mean, it's a terrible time. And I remember I was so nervous. I went and had breakfast, and I was behind Tate Modern. And you walk around, there's a pavilion in the front. That's where we're going to meet. And I was, like, shaking. I was so nervous. And I was like, what if nobody's there? It's, like, going to be, like, if nobody's there, I'm just going to keep walking and look cool and <laughs> won't be a problem at all. And then I started worrying, like, what if it's, like, one person there? And it's like, uh... Creepy, you know. And anyway, I came around the corner and there's like 13 people there and they're all like running over and say, hey, how you doing? And it was like immediately so cool. And it's funny because I'm really close friends with a couple of those people to this day. And I went back the next year and did another meetup. I never done these meetups before. But the amazing thing about those is that for the first time, I mean, you know, if you have a YouTube channel or you do anything online and you look at your analytics, whether it be Facebook or YouTube or whatever, you see numbers and you kind of want those numbers to get higher and that's kind of how you gauge your popularity. And it's just data on a screen. And then when I met 13 people face to face and became friends with them, it was a completely different thing. And I think that was the turning point when I really got serious about doing the show. Um, and it had nothing to do with you know, personal ego or anything, but it was a conversation that I realized I was having with people. And so that was the most interesting thing to me about it. I mean, that's why we're here because it's the internet and you can reach out and, hey, we have something in common. You like this and I like this and we can talk about it. And then you get inspired by what other people are doing. A lot of people think that, 
how the internet makes us more secluded. Yeah. But I love how you're going, like, talking about how it actually creates community and you can talk to people and create. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think, yeah, let's definitely talk about that because I think, especially in the photography niche, and I don't know where you want to edit this, but I'll let you worry about that, um, especially with the photography niche that I'm in. And it's, I mean, you know, there's some really wonderful people that I've met doing that. But a lot of times, and I, and, you know, to a degree, this is just YouTube in general, too. You do get tools that come in and leave stupid comments and just try to get a rise out of you or something. But I think especially for um, people who are in the creative business, so whether that be photography or whether that be video work, it's a very difficult field to be in. Um, the work and the budgets that big companies have had have gone down and really the whole process of what we do I think is changing. However, um, I, the relationships that I've made with people and friendships that I've made just through that community aspect of the internet is what makes that so important. And that, that's the whole reason that I continue to do my show. I could make more money doing something else, uh, but I'm not as happy doing that. And that's ultimately why I left the museum. Um, it got to a point, and I'll circle back to that, it got to a point um, early 2014 where uh, you know, the museum, like everybody else coming out of a bad economy, had, you know, tightened the belt on the budget and we were having to do more with less and you're working a lot more hours, you're not getting a pay raise. And it was really consuming my time. And I did like working at the museum. Um, I had, was around some amazing coworkers, but my show was also taking off and I had advertisement that I was doing on there. I had sponsorships and product placement that I was doing. And so it was paying for itself, um, but it reached a boiling point with time where it was like, okay, I need to do one or the other. I need to either stop the show or I need to, to leave the museum. And the museum was the hard one to leave because, I mean, I left a pension, paycheck, health insurance, all that stuff that was provided uh, to just kind of jump out there cold. But I, you know, but that community aspect ultimately was what was most satisfying for me. And, you know, all the way back to doing those meetups and the people that I met doing that, um, you know, the internet... I think at its best is a conversation, and it always has been, even since the early days. I remember, you know, getting my first email account, and you know, the, you had IRC channels and stuff like that, and you're like, wow, I can talk to some guy in Korea. And back then, that was fascinating. Now we take that for granted, but that's that core of it is still what's so powerful about what can be done with the internet is that community. And I think that what I did uh, was just, and I still do to this day, it's just a matter of reaching out. If you find something that's cool, send somebody an email and say, hey, I like what you're doing. This is really neat. And a conversation begins. And pretty soon you start making connections with people. They know who you are, you know who they are. And I think the mistake that so many people make online sometimes Particularly, you know, back when I was doing a lot of flash design and I would, you know, for a career, I would do portfolios for photographers and stuff like that. And everybody just kind of thought it was like this fishing line. You just cast it out in whatever bit and I'll put my work online and I'll get hired. Well, it's like showing up to a cocktail party with your portfolio. Nobody really wants to see that at a cocktail party, you know. So it's it's a matter of of, of diving into that community and, and, you know, making those things happen. And I think that that's, you know, what the most powerful thing about it is. And ultimately leaving my job to do this show full time, um, you know, I, I, I do a lot of shows where I thank people and I tell everybody I have the best audience ever. And of course, some of that's tongue in cheek, but I really do think I have the best audience ever because there's a lot of people that, you know, you just reach out and have that conversation with. Um, one of the things that I did on the show that I think was, was, um, surprisingly uh, successful was a couple of years ago, um, I was trying to clear out my massive collection of books and I thought, you know, it'd be cool to do some giveaways on the show. So I'd just do a simple challenge and we did these on Twitter and so you had to use a hashtag and all of a sudden, 
Twitter starts picking up. And the most interesting thing about that, though, was seeing people that were fans of the show connect with one another. And all of a sudden, I, you know, and, and I get copied on a lot of the tweets, but you have people that are like, hey, I like your work, or and this was really cool what you did. And they're kind of starting to have that conversation. And that's the most rewarding thing for me out of all of this stuff is, is just seeing those, those kinds of relationships and things happen. Um, you know, there are people, like I said, that, that I'm friends with to this day that I've met at meetups. And we met because I had something to say. I put it on the internet and they came back around and said, hey, I agree with this or I disagree with this. And, and you start that conversation and that's what makes all that so powerful. It's interesting because we'll come back to this theme because we're always talking about you're kind of a product of all the things that make you who you are today. So, you know, when I look at what I do now, I mean, there is a relationship back to the music thing because I've come full circle on that. Um, now I score my own films. So, you know, you gotta do what you gotta do. And if nobody's gonna hire you to do a film soundtrack, then be a filmmaker and hire yourself. Um, I'm being a little silly with that, but, um, and I don't score every show that I do on YouTube, but the special videos, I will put a lot of effort into the music and I still score those. And it, it for me, it's a nice change because it provides a little balance to me. But I mean, I think for advice for anybody, no matter what it is that you're doing, I mean, you know, we're a product of all these things that, that make us who we are. But I think we end up, and this is my biggest fear, is, is taking something for granted and not seeing it because you're too close to the forest to see the trees, so to speak. And you know, we have so much today with the internet and with what you can do. And it really, you, what you we're seeing right now is the creative business, and it's been doing this since I think the 90s, but it's going under a tremendous change. Um, in the 90s, it was a shocking change for people because all of a sudden, uh, you know, let's say you're a photographer and you're trying to get work and you're trying to get clients and there's all the stuff on the internet and all of a sudden then you're competing with stock photography. And I remember when, you know, as photographers, digital technology came out and everybody was talking about, I've got to go digital, you know, like it was this event that you had to do. And it's really interesting to see how afraid of that people were. And when you look back, hindsight being 2020, you know, if you jumped on that early, you would have been so much more ahead of the curve. And I think that now it changes a little more slowly, but you know, it's an internet-based thing, internet thing now. And even the way movies are being produced has changed the way television, I mean, television is in big trouble right now. Um, they are clinging to sports and news and news. I mean, come on. I mean, there's nothing you can't get online. And the problem with sports is then you have to invest in a cable package just to watch basketball or baseball or whatever it is that you're into. And it's very unfortunate because I think that that kind of thinking is going to hold those people back. But, you know, now with the internet, um, I just think that if, if you're a creator and, and you have things to make, um, you have that opportunity to do it right there. You don't have to, sorry, is he telling us that it's time to stop? <laughs> Um, but as a creator, you, you don't have to, yeah, just cut me off when it's done. We can always back up. Um, but as a creator, um, you really have no excuse anymore. I mean, you can make something and put it out. I mean, it used to be that if you wanted to go into acting, you'd have to move to Los Angeles. Or take my example, um, you know, when I got out of college, I realized I'd have to move to LA and starve for another 10 years. Well, that is off the boards now. I mean, it, it doesn't work that way. Um, if you're a musician, like what I would do if I were just getting out of college right now, is you know go get a SoundCloud account and tweet and Facebook and share your music with as many people as possible. A lot of people used to look at that as giving your work away, but that's not how it is anymore. It is free PR. And you're able to put your stuff out into the world and through those conversations we were talking about earlier, you know, what if you meet somebody who's a filmmaker? Filmmakers need music. And nobody really wants to use stock music when you're putting your heart and soul into something. Um, 
and and that's the hard thing. I mean, you know, it's one thing if you're working for an ad agency and we have a TV ad. Well, we need something we can buy today and get it on there. So that's why you would use stock music. But an independent filmmaker doesn't think that way. They want to make something that's special, that's unique, that's cool. And so use the internet, get that out there. But you also have to start those conversations. And I think that's the disconnect that, that a lot of people don't get. Um, they put their work up, they put their time into it, but then they don't reach out. Since it's called Creative Spaces, we'll show the space. I did do the paint myself um, just because it needed to be a little darker and a little more comforting to be in. But for video work, um, the lights are all daylight balanced and the key is by, I had to do this on the cheap because moving is expensive, but little things you can do for lighting that are amazing is first of all, make sure every bulb is the same brand, color, temperature, everything. Uh, don't even mix brands and get that consistent. And then the other thing I did is the, uh, the China Globe, um, which, you know, it, what I wanted to do was, I mean, if I had unlimited budget, I'd build a cage in the ceiling and buy Kino Flows and, and set it up like a TV studio. But uh, that was an option for financial reasons. And, and if you want the cheapest and easiest way to just diffuse light and make it look pretty, is just get one of those China globes. And that's exactly what it does is just break up lights. So, um, so anyway, so, so far that's where we are in here. It's been a, a work in progress. But um, uh, the music stuff, I also use... Um, a combination of things. Either I use, you know, organic sounds like the synthesizer. Sometimes they found sounds or sampled things. Um, the other thing I will do is I still play guitar, and everything I do is kind of ambient and loop based, and that's just. Um, you know, some of my favorite musicians were, you know, progressive people like David Torn and uh, Robert Fripp, and that were experimenting a lot in the 70s and 80s with um, ambient sound and looped layering. And so the whole idea is uh, with the Strymon units that I have over there. You have a delay pedal, and that one, I don't remember what the limit on it is pretty long. Um, it used to be you had a limit of like 20 seconds, and I think that one will do up to a minute now. But anyway, you can, basically, it's like hitting record on a tape deck, and you record one part into it, and then stop it, and then whatever it recorded, it just loops over and over, and then you can start to overdub on top of that. And what's really cool with the Strymon stuff is then you can flip things backwards, and you can take it up or down an octave, and you can speed it up, and you can slow it down. And so it has all these options that you can do with layering sound like that. And so a lot of the times, um, um, because the music that I do now is more soundtrack based um, when I do artist series films and things like that. Um, so I will typically layer more ambient sounds for stuff like that. And then depends on what it is, but the last thing I'll do is, uh, you know, what it you know, is very conventional with just basic sampling an audio track and cutting it up and slicing it up and putting it with a drum groove and moving on. And so for that, I just use basic MIDI inputs. But, you know, for me, it's like there's, there's a real love-hate relationship with the computer because when I started doing music, this was before we had... Um, doll workstations and things like that. So, uh, you know, when I was a kid, I had a four track and a four track, I still have it somewhere and it's in pieces, but it's just this plastic cassette deck and it allowed you to do four tracks on there. And it was amazing. There was no syncing, there was no MIDI, there was no digital possibilities with it, but you had four tracks. And so when I was in high school, I remember saving my money and getting this cassette four track. And it was like a little recording studio and you had a little mixing board. Now, if you needed more than four tracks, you could do what was called a bounce, where you take, you record three tracks and you could mix them down to the fourth track. That opens up the other three. And you can kind of continue to bounce like that. So it required a lot of, uh, I think, you know, stuff that like has helped me now with my career, but like just kind of logistical thinking like that, that's a little bit more abstract at times. Um, but I, that was a big deal. And, and so that's how I recorded music through high school and college. Um, and I had a little drum machine and I would layer my own guitars. And so it, it's weird because now there's something so cold about using a computer, I think. Um, that like, you know, using a MIDI controller like I have back here and just plugging that in and playing your parts in and, and just it's, everything's quantized and perfect. And 
and there's a place for that music, but I just hate that aspect of it. So like actual recording music is really, I think, challenging for me to get around. So that's why I think the guitar looping adds that organic element into it or experimenting with, with analog synthesizers. So those kinds of things I tend to prefer. However, I do like the fact that on a computer, I keep a folder of all my stuff, and I'll use GarageBand and Logic, because sometimes GarageBand's just quick if you have an idea. It's not a great program, but it, it works. Um, so I have folders for Logic documents and GarageBand documents, and I just keep song ideas in there all the time. Um, because the way I work, I mean, typically, I don't have music in the regular art of photography videos, typically. Um, those just are me, and they're not long enough and don't require it. But when I have something special that does, a lot of times, and this is kind of part of like just getting your work out there is you don't have time to actually sit down and compose something because you've got all this other work to do. So I kind of like to have my own stock library to work from where I try to have stuff in there with different moods at different tempos of different kind of feels to it. And, and that tends to work uh, pretty well for me. So um, that's essentially how I go about uh, doing the musical aspects of things. Man, good times. Creative Spaces TV. That's the OG Peachy fam if you watch Creative Spaces TV. Um, some of those things from the interview that really got me was when he was talking about rendering video. I remember when I first got my start in middle school uh, and the first time that I ever tried out Final Cut Pro is that or Final Cut Pro 7. It was in the ninth grade and I didn't have the software uh, personally, but they had it at the school. And whenever you would add any effects, so maybe I add a blur or even a color correction, you would have to sit there and you have you would have to re-render the clips that you add the effects to in order to view it. Oh, sometimes it's really helpful to remind myself of those situations um, when I'm like complaining about a computer not having an updated processor or something. I'm like, literally there was a time where the computers weren't up to date, where you, it would just, video editing was impossible. It would just take days. Wow, that just that puts it into perspective. I'm so thankful that we can do video jobs in a somewhat fairly efficient way. Isn't that great? And then the fact that, holy smokes, guys, podcasting is not new. It is not new. He started the art of photography in 2008 as originally a video podcast on iTunes. It wasn't even on YouTube. A video podcast on iTunes. Wow, I'm telling you, if iTunes really leaned into that video portion, um, I feel like Apple TV could be, you know, another version of YouTube. I mean, think about it. If they had banked, you know, the the past 10 years of podcasts, the video versions of that, that is a crazy. Wow. Anyways, one of my favorite things he said was the internet at its best is a conversation. And that's what I, I feel like these podcasts are with you guys. And I'm thankful for this connection. I'm thankful for all of you guys who talk to us at That Creative Life on Twitter. Creative is spelled CRTV. Um, there's always so many good conversations going on there on um, the Instagram that creative.life. It's, it's just so cool when you can build a creative community and we can learn together and we can grow together. And it's amazing. Um, and speaking of that, you guys are always asking me questions on Twitter. It helps if you use hashtag that creative life, but I also see them in my mentions. So I'm going to get into some questions and then maybe sprinkle in a few of the questions that you asked me and John or asked, yeah, John and me. That's the correct grammar. Why am I worrying about syntax right now? Come on, Sarah. Yeah, I have some questions left over, obviously, because you guys almost, I, it came out to almost a thousand questions that got asked last week. And thank you for listening to that. That was a fun one. I think we need to have John more on the podcast. Um, but before we get into that, thank you, B&H. 
photo video so much for sponsoring this podcast in the middle of the podcast we always go through a new piece of tech that just came out and guess what's out a new drone do you guys care about drones i'm genuinely asking do you care about drones anymore because i don't true truthfully once they you know all the really strict rules came in in new york city and probably rightfully so i can't believe i was you know flying my drone in new york city which is just insane i always did it over the water but um now i don't fly it because the restrictions are so tight but the new mavic air 2 seems pretty promising and i like that they're just adding on to the software dji is always really great with the software and i'll just read just straight off of the bnh explorer blog because they keep you up to date with all the latest greatest gear directly from the blog it says mavic air 2 shoots higher quality video and image stills it also has a more sophisticated vision system with better tracking features and obstacle avoidance so going back to them caring about the software is really great um, i watched a few of the reviews and to, to see it just flawlessly tracking someone in a car on a bike where they don't have to press any buttons. I mean, that's cool. That's where I'm like, okay, once a drone without fail can just follow me and I don't have to press any buttons, sign me up for that. There's also a really cool feature where you can stand in the middle of the drone and it'll like, it'll uh, follow you in a circle. So you're standing, maybe doing some dope dance moves or John's doing a skate trick. Um, one of the modes with these new drones is it'll just uh, track you around in a circle and it does really great slow-mo 4k 60 frames per second um, and then it also has 120 sec uh, 120 frames per second in 1080 and then you know the the bigger sensor allows for the better stills so in the previous it shot 12 megapixel stills but now it can shoot 48 megapixel stills and keep in mind that all of this is under a thousand dollars so i will link the bnh photo uh link if you want to check it out check out the specs and they also uh, bnh also did a really good video about this drone that i will put in the show notes below yeah so it's 7.99 that's pretty great i mean drones have gotten to a place where man, they're pretty sick. If if maybe I live permanently in Texas, I would care more about drones because there's more open space that you can just fly them. Man, now that I'm thinking about it, I should have brought my drone. Dang it. <laughs> um, thank you, BNH, for sponsoring this podcast. Links always in the show notes below. And let's get into some of the questions. Thanks for asking some questions, guys. And leaving off on Ted Forbes. Oh my gosh, as I was logging into my phone, I always get my daily heart attacks where I have my Nest notification, uh, the security cameras in my office. Uh, in my office it usually pings me like once a day if the light comes in in a perfect way and it mistakes one of my light domes as a head as a person <laughs> so the daily heart attack is oh no someone's in my office oh no it's not it's just some light um okay the cyber truck guy on twitter nice nice name how do you keep motivated when you don't have strict deadlines Ooh, cyber truck guy that is such a good question and that's something that I was talking about in the beginning of my podcast where I'm in Texas, even though I have a few strict deadlines of, oh, okay, I know the Squarespace integration needs to go up in the month of May. I still make those deadlines, right? I still say, oh, I want to post it May 15th. And so especially when there's a lot going on in the world um, and you start focusing on other things, it's really easy for your priorities to kind of get out of whack and honestly for you to just turn into a pile of mush. And so I'm actually taking the opportunity right now in that my mind has honestly been really scattered 
last month I was super anxious. I, I've never really had to deal with anxiety or depression before in my entire life, you know, like in all honesty, that was always something that like other people experienced, right? But last month I really was like freaking out and it, and I'm still seeing the effects of that, of like not working for an entire week, how it's pushed me so behind. So not to say that like I need I needed to allow myself that time because um, I probably would have just spiraled deeper if I didn't and I'm you know in a great place now and so now I, I've really put a priority on okay I'm gonna pause even more I'm gonna figure out how to get my life organized because I am someone who you know I need to look up the definition of type A because I've been using I've been using you know when you use certain words and you're like is that right I don't know if that's right okay a type A personality is okay personalities are more competitive highly organized ambitious impatient highly aware of time management and or aggressive and or aggressive those are type a okay so i have been using it right <laughs> the only trait out of that i would say is i'm highly competitive and ambitious but I am not organized. I am not aware of time management. I have been a procrastinator for the majority of my life. And I think a lot of uh, creative people are. And I think when it comes to creative projects, it's really easy to become hyper-focused on one thing if you're super excited about it. So my first uh, two, three, four years of making YouTube videos, half the time when I didn't even have an audience, but I just had like a hope and a dream and I was pumped. Man, was I hyper-focused. I was like, nothing matters in the world. Of course, my college schoolwork suffered for that and then I eventually dropped out, <laughs> but it led me to where I am today. But I, you know, in that sense, I wasn't organized. I didn't have any like, like my only goal was, okay, YouTube and video. I got to make this a thing no matter how I get there, I just got to get there. So usually it's been more of like brute force of like, just make all the videos, put all the things out in no organized fashion at all. And that works for a certain time um, when you're trying to build something, right? But it does not work when all of a sudden is your job. You're working with other people. You're working with managers, lawyers, clients, uh, other companies. And I, I had this realization when I kind of had my uh, freak out. Maybe everyone is having like a Rona freak out moment, right? I, when I was having mine, I was like, dude, I am not organized. I have to get my life together. I have to do all of these things that these type A notes YouTubers and organizational YouTubers are doing, like doing their journaling thing and getting everything in one place and figuring out a productive, you know, productivity app that works for them. I gotta, I gotta get organized. I gotta get a little type A I got to get highly aware of time management. Time management. What is time management? I'm up till like 2, 3 a.m. every night. So that's what needs to change. So that's what I'm working on now. And it, it goes back to your question of being motivated, um, staying motivated, having deadlines, putting those deadlines and breaking that into specific tasks that allow you to meet that deadline, you know, when you want to. So this is all, this all has a point. I promise y'all it all has a point. And the point is... The past week, I realized the stuff that I quote unquote use, but I really don't use. And I, I really haven't found a process that works. And so currently I was using Asana, um, Things, the Things 3 app on iOS and Mac devices, and then OneNote. And 
Uh, sometimes I will, you know, I still have like a, a physical book, like a physical journal that I'll just like jot random things in that aren't necessarily like actionable. I just need to, that's basically my sticky notes. But still, like four different places for my thoughts. I'm never going into a sauna to check up on things. I don't have a task list. I use Things 3, which is really great for checking off things and um, organizing as a task list app. Uh, if you guys need one, I would highly recommend that. It's only a one-time fee at $10. I'm a big fan of it, but it wasn't for me. I wasn't using Asana or Things 3 in a way where I log in every day, I figure out what my tasks are, and then I check them off. It became a dump. It became, oh my gosh, I have all these things in my head, but I got to finish that video. I got to do this. So I'm just going to put it in a, in a checklist and I'll look at it later. But I never looked at it. So having apps that don't really correlate with each other too became a problem because so many of my things in my life are so connected. My YouTube channel and my podcast and my life, what I want to accomplish and goals, you know, and personal goals, what I'm working on with Switchboard. Um, I have so many things going on and they are connected, right? And I do have freelancers who help me with certain things and I got to figure out how to connect them too. And I just wasn't using Asana properly. So I say all this to say that I've taken the past week to unload all of my workflow, figure out what is working for me. Nothing was. So I, I tried different apps and the app that I landed on was a notion because I kept watching all these videos of like Thomas Frank and Ali Abdal, who honestly, guys, both of those guys have been on the podcast and they're really good podcasts. I'll link them in the description below. They're just like amazing productivity YouTubers. So I started watching their videos on Notion and there's a really cool like community on YouTube that makes these very niche videos on how they utilize Notion. And Notion gets put in the same bucket as Asana, Trello, Jira, all of those, you know, tools. But what I found is it's kind of like everything in one and I got rid of things and I got rid of Asana and I'm only using Notion now for those two things. I still use OneNote because I like having something where, you know, you can use the Apple Pencil, you can use Windows Ink and you can write on the laptops or iPads that I'm using. And I also need kind of like a messy space to figure out my thoughts. But then Notion is the space for action. Like I am planning everything for action. There's different like business banking coding worlds who are super aware of relational databases. And that's nothing new. Relational databases have been a thing since like a very long time. One database can relate to another database, pull info from another database, and it can summarize it. You can have a one column in a database pull from different options from another database. How I've been doing this is pulling in all of my projects, whether it's a YouTube video, we have social media sponsored posts, and, and really associating those things with all of the characteristics that are actionable. Like, am I editing it? When's the publish date? When do I need to send uh, to the sponsor to approve? They usually need like two days. What platform is this living on? Who is the sponsor? And, uh, you know, maybe I'll have a YouTube page with all my YouTube videos. And if it has a sponsor, it has that column for sponsor. And that column is related to my sponsorship database where I have all my sponsors and I keep my sponsor data there where it's like, oh, have they paid me yet? Have they 
XYZ? Uh, what are the assets I need for, um, you know, Audible, Squarespace? It helps me be really organized. And when I'm in that YouTube videos page, I can, you know, go from the selection of my possible sponsors. I click it. It stays in that column. And then I can always access the, the other database of sponsorships whenever I want. And I know this is very confusing. I'm realizing now as I'm talking about it, it's hard to talk about it. You need, you kind of need that video component. So as I figure it out, I'm going to make a whole video on it so you can stay tuned on my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash saradici. But yeah, I'm realizing that like my life is kind of a mess um, because I'm not organized. I've never been organized and that's a big goal in my life to become a little more type A, to, you know, look into these productivity uh, productivity YouTubers as my North Star. I gotta be like them. Gotta figure out my life. And then also in Notion, aside from all of the work stuff, you know, keeping it all in one place helps me a lot. So now I go to one place and I actually update things. I actually check off things. It's one of those things that, you know, I'm not just leaving there. For things in Asana, I would just dump stuff and I would very rarely refer to it. Um, so yeah, I encourage you to check that out. I think their website is notion.so. Um, I should probably get like an affiliate link before I make the YouTube video so I can profit off of my recommendations to you guys. Maybe I have one. I think they give out like a general link um, where you can get credits. So I'll check that. I'll, I'll put it. I'll put the link in the description. But um, yeah, it's something that college students use as well. So if you're studying, if you want to journal, um, there's really great videos out there and, and ways that you can journal, document your life, set goals. Because if anything, what kind of like this time has taught me is I really want to, I just want to seize the day more. I want to take, I don't want to take any like one minute for granted, you know, I want time to like hang out with people. I want to get my work done. Um, I want to have fun working. For I know it sounds dorky, but as I get more organized, I'm having fun. Like seeing the tasks ahead of me, being oriented, it's just, it's fun. So that's what I'm trying to do. I know I took a really long time to answer one question, but I hope that helped you guys if, if you're kind of in the the same boat, you know? Okay, so we have another question. This question is from David Buddyano. Buddyano, I'm sorry guys, I butcher your name so much. I've seen many Saradici videos, the laptop reviews, the reason switching from Mac to PC, but I haven't seen your review for the new Mac Pro, which uh, was made especially for professionals. Hope you make one soon. I will not be making a video on that. I'm sorry, that thing is not for me. Like that thing isn't even for professional YouTubers. Like I'm not gonna spend money on a computer that starts at $6,000 and then all the upgrades I would need to probably make it a computer that's over like $10,000. The two desktops that are allowing me to just crush it in my work is, you know, in between an iMac 5K that is completely specced out, but it was, you know, I think $5,000 for a completely specced out machine that does great and has a, you know, DCI-P3 color accurate display attached to it. And then the system that I have in my office that I just love so dearly, it's a custom main gear F131. That one is probably like around 4,000, I would say, maybe, maybe. Um, Then I have that attached to my 49 inch ultra wide, which I'm missing so much. I mean, those, those workstations, they've lasted me the PC almost two years now and the Mac, I've had it for one year and they're just, they're monsters. They crush it for me. They crush 4K workflows. When I make videos that are 4K, they crush the productivity stuff. Um, and I just, I'm not, I am not 
the person who who needs the Mac Pro. So I won't be making a, a review on it. I mean, I mean, that's for like, that's for like crazy color houses and Marvel Studios, people who make crazy cre- and have crazy workflows and need Mac OS. That's who that's for. Not like pro YouTubers. Um, I don't knock people who have a professional workflow and want to buy it. You know, that's more of like a, I feel like a, oh, maybe I don't need this, but I want to be a part of this. I want a Mac Pro. You want to be a, you know, you want to have a cheese grater. I understand that. I totally understand that, but I'm not spending my money on that. No siree. No siree. Okay. Gosh, there's so many questions. Thank you guys. Thank you. Oh, I have a question from Anchit Motri. Again, butchering your name. Sorry, y'all. Ever planning to bring Peter McKinnon on an episode of That Creative Life? He's already been on. I'll link his episode in the show notes below, but we definitely need to have him on for a second time. Like, for sure. A lot has happened since he's been on. Uh, I need to make just a trip to Toronto in general once uh, flying is normal again. Um, Because I love all those people in Toronto. They are good people. I get a lot of... It's interesting, the questions I get. Um, they are pretty similar and I feel like I do have a lot of videos about the, these things, but Ivan asked, Sarah DG, about to have a Mac and Windows video editing workflow. Oh, so you're about to have a video editing workflow in between your machines. How do you manage with your files and jump between them? I can't afford a NAS yet suggestions. Well, you don't, you don't need to have a NAS. I have a whole footage on how I manage um, all of my footage. And I think you can get some good ideas from that video. The answer isn't you have to, you have to buy a NAS. You have to buy this expensive hard drive. I mean, I think just having one really fast external SSD will help you. So if you're shuttling footage from one computer to the other every single day, um, luckily if you use something like Premiere, it doesn't matter if it's Mac or Windows. You know, if your hard drive is uh, not formatted specifically for Windows or Mac, it's still going to be pretty fast in the XFAT uh, format. You can just get one of those external SSDs, so like the Samsung T5, the Lassie SSD Rugged, those are really good. Um, they now have, Lassie now has an SSD Rugged version, which is really cool. It's actually like a really cool hard drive. If you just have like a one terabyte external SSD, you're going to be good. You can just shuffle projects all day. Premiere, it's a really easy workflow to hop from computer to computer. And even if you have the the original footage on each of your computers, that Premiere file isn't gonna be, it's gonna be like, what, five megabytes? It'll be nothing to transfer. You can just put that on a little USB stick and, and have it go in between. And maybe just have a central assets file that's always updated. Um, usually I'll finish a video in one sitting, you know, with one computer. But when that wasn't the case, what I used to do. So say the PC is uh, when you go to the office, you know, you have a, a good PC and the MacBook is for when you're editing at home. Um, when you're editing at the desktop PC. I basically make an assets folder that just says like assets PC. So you know everything that you're adding to your project from that computer goes in that folder. So you know to copy and paste that folder and the updated Premiere file 
um, to your hard drive. So you can then go home on your MacBook with, uh, you know, maybe you still have all the footage. You can just copy over that new assets folder in the new Premiere project and you can relink those assets with like one press of a button and you're good. And then when you're editing on your MacBook, make a new assets folder that's called like assets Mac. So you know, okay, I need to drag over all of the Mac assets to the hard drive because that's what now needs to go on my PC to keep the project going. So that's a little bit of a, you know, not the, it's a, it's a workflow that, that works, right? And then I know a lot of companies have um, central servers and stuff, which makes this process not as bad, but um, I think that would be a good workflow for not having a central location because um, I used to do that all of the time. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna do like one one or two more. Let's try to find some quick ones. Here's a random question from Perry Simmerish. Are you friends with Elodia and Will Dasovich? They've been like crushing it. Um, they have such a engaged audience. But what's really random is we met them two years ago. I think two two or three years ago at CES, we both did a brand deal with Joby, um, you know, the cool gorilla pod things. Um, so yeah, I had the pleasure to meet both of them and they're like so down to earth, amazing humans. So we occasionally chat on, on the social media. From which age did your craze for text begin? Uh, for tech began. And it's so funny. I actually just posted a picture on my Instagram and Twitter of me on my bed holding up a crazy birthday haul from my parents and grandparents where I have like a Game Boy SP and Roller Coaster Tycoon and uh, the Freaky Friday soundtrack and Kelly Clarkson. And I've always been just a major dork my entire life. I've always been really into like games and you know it was Nintendo then and I guess Nintendo now with my Animal Crossing obsession which I haven't even mentioned once until now. Are you proud of me? So I've always been heavily into music into tech. Um, I think a lot of it came from my dad who worked for Microsoft for like over 20 years. So we got discounted Xbox games. You know, we get Xbox games for 20 bucks, which is crazy, right? When you're a little kid and a video game costs $60, you know, you're like, oh, I'm never getting that. Are you kidding me? A $60 game? I guess I have to save up all year for it. So the easy access to video games came in really clutch and I think started those obsessions really early on. And I'm thankful for him because I... I like who I am today. I like my hobbies. I like my job. I get to talk about tech and it's just really fun. Like I have a blast with you guys. So thank you for listening to That Creative Life every Monday. Um, the YouTube channel, uh, youtube.com slash that creative life and the audio episodes are going to look kind of different over the next couple months because the audio episodes are just going to be audio until I can catch up with posting all of the full episodes to the YouTube channel. And then we'll start those interviews going and then I'm going to try to rope in my dad to do that finance podcast for um for next week so i hope you guys look forward to that and thank you so much bnh for sponsoring this podcast and you know what thank you bnh for reminding me that it's freaking mother's day on may 10th so y'all go buy some flowers maybe buy some discounted off cameras from bnh <laughs> um, they have mother's day deals and holy smokes a lot of things are discounted you have the 2018 apple ipad pro um, you're having 120 dollars worth of savings on that guy and then $150 of savings on um, Canon EOS Rebel SL3 DSLR with that 18 to 55 kit lens um, for the total of $599. Well, 
dang, if you're someone, maybe, maybe you can get together with your dad, some family members chip in for a dope camera for your mom, because I know that can get expensive, but there's a lot of great savings, including the Panasonic G7 mirrorless micro four thirds uh, camera with a kit lens. Uh, you can save $350 with that guy. There's a lot of great kits that include micro SDs and all that stuff. There's, man, you know what? Even if you're not buying this for your mom, you can go get some deals for yourself because they're, I mean, they are just slashing the prices on things. And then this is actually what I got my mom um, last year for like a birthday or something. The Fujifilm Insta Mini 11 Instant Film Camera, $59.95. So you're saving 14% on that. Deals, 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 deals. Anyways, happy Mother's Day also to all of you moms out there. I know it's not May 10th yet we're we're getting there moms always have i think one of the one of the most challenging jobs so congrats if you've raised kids because like i'm a mess i don't know how genie did it with me so yeah thank you so much bnh for sponsoring this podcast all those mother's day deals will be in the show notes below and until next monday guys thank you for listening and yeah subscribe apple Podcasts, google Podcasts, spotify wherever you listen okay cheers